Hi, I'm Millie Thomas, an eating disorder recovery coach. We've created this podcast to raise awareness about all types of eating disorders and help dispel some of the many myths and stigma that unfortunately still surround them. It feels like it's like a drug. You know it's bad because you know like this is hurting me, but it somehow makes you feel like you're doing something right. My eating disorder started at seven. You get to that point where you just, you just don't know what to do. This is the End Eating Disorders podcast, brought to you by BCU, customer-owned banking for you. It's been a long and at times slow process. <sighs> the eating disorder's in charge and your daughter's not there. Find someone that you trust more than you trust your eating disorder self. I was in tears and I was screaming at the nurses, give me something to eat, my baby is kicking me. You cannot do this to this life that has no voice yet. There is hope. everyone. Welcome back to our podcast. This week, I am talking to the amazing Ryan Sheldon, and we are talking about binge eating disorder. Thanks so much for coming on to the podcast, Ryan. I really, really appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor. How is it in LA at the moment? Uh, it's getting better. It's been it's been a rough couple of five months, but I think it's been like that for the whole world. So unfortunately, Los Angeles has, I think, the highest rate right now of COVID deaths. So we're trying to, to lock things down again. It's a crazy time, isn't it? It's it's outrageous, yeah. Hey, I wanted to begin by you giving our listeners a little bit of an insight into your journey with, with binge eating disorder. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I'm 32 years old. I live in Los Angeles, California. I was diagnosed with binge eating disorder back in 2015. And at that time that I was diagnosed, I was given this opportunity to travel the country sharing my story of having binge eating disorder. And during that time, not only was I the sickest I had ever been, I was also going around saying, oh, I'm cured. I'm cured. This like, it's great. You can get treatment. And I hadn't done any of that. But during the process of me traveling the country, I had this idea that if I'm struggling with this disease, binge eating disorder, there must be other men struggling as well. Because when I was diagnosed, I went right to Google and I, you know, typed in men with eating disorders and nothing really popped up. So I decided to create my blog and my Instagram at that time. And then things started to progress. And then I became a spokesperson for the National Eating Disorders Association. And I got a a radio show. I'm working on a book right now. And I'm also a model, which is crazy because it's all kind of tied into the, to this thing you know, I took the darkest time of my life and I kind of turned it into my career. So it's pretty, it's pretty amazing. That's so cool. I've sort of done the same thing with mine and it's in a way, it's a bit like coming full circle, isn't it? Because you're still working in it every day, but you're able to turn what was, as you say, such a dark time around and use it to help others. And I find it incredibly rewarding. It's so rewarding. It's also, it can be extremely triggering. I mean, when all you do is talk about this, like we're kind of doing right now, it's, it can be triggering when it happens repetitively. So it's very important that I, you know, keep myself in check and I have my doctors and my support group. So it's important for me. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Now, when you were in the throes of binge eating disorder, for someone who doesn't understand what that what that means, what that's like, how would you describe it? What was going on for you on a daily basis? 
you know, I felt that a lot of what I was experiencing was normal. I, you know, would wake up early, think about what I would be eating for dinner, think about what I'd be eating for lunch, think about what I'd be eating for dinner in three days from now. I would go to work and then I would, you know, go look up recipes at the office and I would send some recipes to my friend who also had binge eating disorder. And we would start planning out our weekend menu on how we're going to binge. That was one way that it transpired or manifested in me. Another way would be, you know, I'd go to dinner with my family or friends. And on the way home, I would get this anxiety, this overwhelming anxiety that I had to go through the drive-thru. I had to go through the drive-thru fast food. And I would go through one and I had the specific food that I would order. And then I would go to the one right next to it and I would order more. And then I would take those reusable grocery bags that I had in my car to carry all the food up to my flat because I didn't want people to uh, to realize what I was doing. And then I would, I would binge and I would eat so much and I would feel like garbage about myself after. It was, you know, I think there's this misconception with people that have binge eating disorder that A, you're either extremely overweight or B, like you must love food. And like the reality is, is that I didn't even enjoy food that much. That's the absurd part is I wasn't really enjoying what I was putting in my mouth. How could you? I was binging so much to the point of being so sick. I remember this one time I I binged and I literally, and I'm not a religious person at all, but I prayed to God. I was like, please don't make me feel this way anymore. I, I can't do this. So that was kind of how it started for me. And I was very secretive about, you know, my eating habits and going through college and, you know, my weight was fluctuating, yo-yo dieting, all of these things. And then I remember I was, I went through a fast food restaurant and I was with my friend and I ordered $70 worth of food. Now, I'm not sure what that equates to in your currency, but it's a lot of money here. Uh, And my friend, to put it into perspective, my friend spent $12. And she said, Ryan, I think that you, you know, you should look up binge eating disorder. And I never even heard of it. And that's when I looked it up. And I was like, oh my gosh, this sounds like something that I have. And then I went to my doctor with it. Was it a bit of a relief to know that there was a name for it and there was, you know, a way of not having to live with it for the rest of your life? Oh my gosh. So the biggest weight was lifted off my shoulders because now I was no longer embarrassed for what I was experiencing because there is, there's like a name for it. Like a light bulb went off kind of moment. And the thing is, is that I also, I think it's fair to say that I thought the diagnosis was the cure. So when I was diagnosed with binge eating disorder, my doctor didn't really say, here's what you need to do. It was kind of like, oh, there's a name for it, which was a huge relief. And then I kind of just went on with my day. And that was obviously the wrong thing to do. But unfortunately, at least in the States, there's not that much education to doctors about eating disorders. So I finally ended up getting treatment and help. And what's what did treatment for you look like? Uh, a lot of heartache. Um, so I was diagnosed in 2015 and I have been in recovery since 2016. Um, and again, during that time, I felt like a fraud because I was going around saying that I have it all figured out and that wasn't the case. Treatment looked like, you know, I didn't do inpatient treatment, residential treatment. I um, did outpatient in doctors, you know, five days a week. And I now go to my therapist two days a week, but it truly changed my life. But what also comes in for me into play is like body dysmorphic disorder, which is a whole other conversation and they don't have to go hand in hand with eating disorders, but in my case it did. Absolutely. And so for someone who doesn't understand body dysmorphic disorder, could you just give us an example of of how that's affected your life? 
oh, wow, yeah, that's affected my life dramatically. And also, so is my eating disorder. Like, people think, oh, you have binge eating disorder. They kind of laugh at you. They say, oh, like, you just like to eat food. And that's so, A, very hurtful because it's not necessarily the case. Like, not only were my obsessions surrounding food, but I lost my job because of my eating disorder. I lost friendships because of my eating disorder. And I was going into debt because of my eating disorder. People don't tell you that because people think the only people that have eating disorders are white, middle to upper class women, and that would be anorexia. And that's so wrong because, you know, eating disorders do not discriminate. They can affect anyone. They don't care about your ethnicity, your sexual orientation, your religion, gender, your socioeconomic background, and the list goes on. And it's it's very frustrating. So, so how that's affected me is I remember at the age of eight years old, I hated my body. I would go swimming over the summertime and I would wear a t-shirt and people would say, why are you wearing a shirt? And I said, because I sunburn easily. And they said, well, haven't you ever heard of sunblock? And I was like, of course I have, but I have very fair pale skin and it doesn't work. That's obviously not the case. It, I just was so ashamed and embarrassed to show my body. It kind of manifested in other ways to the point where I would put sheets over my mirrors because I didn't even want to see myself. Because when I looked in the mirror, I saw something that nobody else saw. It was almost like it was a crime to be fat. And and that's like not a good way to look at it at all because that's just wrong. But it's affected me in my life in a lot of ways. I it's affected my relationships. I don't like to date or I didn't like to date because of the way I felt about my body. I didn't want to go into the office. I stopped going into the office because I was ashamed of the way that I looked. And it's all of these things that just manifest in your head and you start to think that you're not worthy because of your body. And then I hit a point where I was so sick and tired of viewing the world through the lens of my body. I just kind of threw my hands up and that's when I got even more help. And I'll never forget, I sat in my therapist's office who specializes in body dysmorphic disorder and eating disorders. And she had me get up in front of a mirror and say one thing I liked about myself physically. And I couldn't say anything. And on the seventh visit, she asked me again and I said, I like my nose. And she said, why do you like your nose? And I said, because people tell me I have a good nose. And I, looking back on that, it's so unnerving to think that I couldn't think of one thing I liked about my body um, without somebody else's input. It's been a very weird relationship with myself that it's been, it's an ongoing journey for sure. I think it's an ongoing journey for all of us. I think for anyone, even people who don't, Uh, struggle with eating disorders or haven't had, you know, haven't in the past. I think we all journey with ourselves, with our bodies, with our souls. It's a complicated one. Do you think it's harder as a man to struggle with eating disorders and and body image issues? Because as you say, that that societal myth that there is around these primarily being women's issues and that whole, you know, (laughs) white rich girl syndrome, you and I both know that that is so far from the truth and that eating disorders don't discriminate. But there is in society that idea that that's where eating disorders are at. You know, 100%. And I think that just to throw actually some statistics at you from uh, at least the United States, 30 million Americans are struggling or, or will struggle with an eating disorder at some point in their life. And 10 million of those are men. So that's one third of the amount of diagnosed people are men that struggle with eating disorders. And I think that that number is severely underrepresented because of the shame and stigma that's associated with eating disorders. What are eating disorders? They are a mental health issue. It's interesting to look back at my journey when I first started my blog and my Instagram. I started to have men reaching out to me 
And they were telling me, I don't know if I have an eating disorder, but I relate to what you're talking about. So thank you for doing that. Now I'm going to go talk to my doctor. It started to trickle in like one by one. And then it started to be dozens. And then it was hundreds of men were reaching out to me saying, thank you for sharing. And I was just like, this is crazy. So I think to answer your question, I think it's twofold. I think a lot of times men have a hard time opening up about mental health issues because they're going to be perceived as being weak or they're going to be perceived as being gay. And that's fine. No, there's nothing wrong with that. But that's one of the things. And then the other part of it is I think the healthcare professionals have to really open their their eyes a little bit because a lot of times doctors won't screen patients for eating disorders. Mine did not screen me for an eating disorder. And I remember when I got diagnosed, I asked him, why didn't you screen me for one? And he said, Ryan, I have so many other things to screen you for. That's not on the top of my list. And he's like, also, he's like, I look at you and you don't look like you have an eating disorder. Well, guess what? Joke's on him because, um, joke's on all of us, I guess, because most people don't wear their eating disorders. You cannot look at somebody and say you have an eating disorder. It's very frustrating. I mean, that's why I love what I do because it's, and what you do as well, it's like you're educating people just by storytelling. Absolutely. And I think, you know, we're both so passionate about it too. As you understand, it's like eating disorders don't have a look and really getting people to understand that because there is so much stigma and so many myths out there that still have to be broken down. And it takes a whole lot of us with lived experience to stand up and go, okay, this is not the reality. This is the reality. And I think that's, you know, we're seeing at the moment, just more voices of lived experience coming forward. And I'm really excited about what that's going to mean for the future of eating disorders. It it is exciting. And to like put it into perspective, though, for the healthcare professionals, uh, the DSM-5, which is the diagnostic manual that the doctors use here in the States to basically diagnose people, it's like the Bible, up until 2013, to be diagnosed with anorexia, you had to have missed, I think it was two or three menstrual cycles. So that automatically meant that no men could be diagnosed with anorexia. It's absurd infuriating. Oh, absolutely. It's, it's ridiculous. And change is long overdue. Like what effect did social media have on your journey? Obviously now it's like a massive part of your life and what you do. But back then when you were going through binge eating disorder, did it interplay in any way? So when I was diagnosed was kind of the time that Instagram, because really that was the biggest one for influencers. It didn't play that much of a role for me back then. I remember when I started my journey and I was like looking for other people that were struggling with eating disorders or body image issues. It was only women that were out there. There weren't any men. uh, So then I became like the first guy doing it. Uh, It was interesting. I think that, you know, when you are going through an experience like whatever it is, whatever mental health issue you're going through or, or any experience in life in general, I guess, you don't know how to play it almost or, or like what road to go down. I look at myself from when I was first diagnosed and I thought that talking about food so much was the way that I had to cope. And then it was what I needed to do on social media because I didn't know what to do. And then being a part of this community, it's like my education, I can it's like continuing, it's never ending. And something that I think that people have this like interesting view is because because I have a platform, because I'm a spokesperson for the National Eating Disorders Association, because I'm on TV, they think that I have it all figured out. And they ha- think a lot of other influencers have it figured out. And they they don't necessarily. Like, I don't have it all figured out. I still struggle. And that is what is so critical in my storytelling when it comes to like 
on Instagram or going to events or whatever it is, is I want to let people know that I don't have it all figured out, but I do know that there's a light at the end of the tunnel. I am in recovery. I'm not recovered. There's the whole debate of recovery versus recovered, by the way. I don't know like what your thoughts are, but uh, yeah, it's a journey. Look, I definitely believe it in full recovery, but I also, you know, know that there are people out there who, you know, do subscribe to that idea that you're always in recovery. And I, I accept everybody's viewpoint on that because I think everybody's experience is unique. And in terms of that, have you come to a place of acceptance now with your body? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, you know, I'm going to say yes and no. I know that that's such a ridiculous answer, but there's this whole, you know, the whole movement of body positivity. Now, I don't necessarily abide by that. I don't necessarily believe in body positivity because if I'm body positive, that's me telling you that I love my body and everything about it 100% of the time. That's not how I view it. I think body positivity is actually destructive to a lot of people because when I see that on Instagram, I'm like, how do you love your body 100% of the time? Like, I'm never going to be that person. So now I'm comparing myself to you. I live by more of the body acceptance, body neutrality perspective where, listen, like, I don't necessarily love my body. I have love handles. I accept them and I own them. And now I've made a career out of them because I'm getting paid to be on billboards, which is mind blowing to even think about. But it's it's very important for me to mention that because I, I think that like, you know, getting onto social media conversations, like where you see these influencers that have that cultural ideal body. And what I mean by that is, you know, the bodies for men, it's with the six pack, with the chiseled jawline. It's the body that as a society, we're taught that to be powerful, wealthy, successful, worthy, and lovable, we have to look a certain way. I myself and so many other people are so guilty of believing in that. And that's just not true. But you see these people posting these pictures and, and it's, it's very destructive. Absolutely. And I, like you, I'm a big fan of body acceptance and body neutrality because I think it, it comes in waves. You know, some days you can be feeling great. And I think the difference is that you don't treat your body any differently. You don't nourish yourself any differently or punish yourself with exercise or anything like that. Well, that's my experience is that that's the difference for me is it's like, I don't love my body a hundred percent of the time, but I still care for it and still nourish myself in the same way. And, and I'm kind to myself and say, and I don't beat myself up about it because I know that I'm worth so much more than my body. And don't you think that that's so much more powerful than saying you love your body 100% of the time? Because who who does? And I think that's what is so important about the work that you and I both do is that we need to be relatable. People need to be able to go, oh my goodness, yes, I resonate with that. Rather than this being some unattainable ideal of, of recovery or perfection or having it all worked out, as you said before. Correct. Now, I'm really interested, you know, with the modeling that you do, how do you navigate that mm -hmm. without it being like highly triggering. Oh, how do you know it's not triggering? Uh, it's um, so I remember when I was considering doing modeling, that all happened because I was on a big TV show here. And then I had people reaching out to me and they're like, you should consider modeling. And I was like, I don't know about that because I don't think I look like a model. Um, and then there's something called brawn model, which is the equivalent of a curvy plus size woman model, but it's the male version. And I remember my therapist said, Ryan, do you really want to get into this? Like, this is like, you have a lot of issues and challenges and struggles with your the way you view your body. And I'm like, you know what? I'm finally at a place where I feel like I can celebrate my body. So that was one side of it. The other side of it is I said, gosh, and I'm, I'm going to be totally honest with you at this point. It was, what, two years ago. I was like, I need validation. 
if I get this modeling contract, that means that I must be good looking. So I got the modeling contract. And then I, the day after I signed, I was working. And I, by the way, I thought it was that easy. I was like, oh, this is going to be so easy. I was totally wrong, by the way. But um, I, I'll never forget the first set I ever went to, I went to set and the person didn't even think that I was one of the models, by the way. And then I just remember having this feeling of like, what am I doing here? Like everybody else on set looks like has that six pack, looks like an actual model. And here I am and I don't look like one. So that was triggering for me. And then as time went on, it got a little bit better. You got kind of used to doing it. And then I remember I was in Portugal in December for the biggest shoot I've ever done of my career. And I was on a beach, the beaches of Portugal. It was, it was incredible. And I will never forget, I left set and I called my mom crying and she said, what's wrong? I said, mom, I don't even belong here. Like, why am I here? Like, I don't look like these people that have the six pack. I don't get it. And it's, so it is, and that was only like, what, six, eight months ago or something. So I'm, it's still a journey for me, but I think that I was talking to um, editor in chief of some magazine recently, and we were talking about how people get into modeling because they want that validation. And that is exactly why I got into it, to be completely honest with you. And it is the wrong career to get into if you're looking for that. hundred <laughs> percent. Because I think, you know, like also like when you see yourself on a billboard, which is really cool, by the way, you're also like, it doesn't, it doesn't fill that, that void of you feeling like crap about your body. It doesn't. In fact, you get more, you critique it even more. It's that whole searching for external validation too, because it's about, you know, what other people think of me and wow, look at me that I know for me and my journey, that was one of the biggest things that I had to work on was you know, who cares what other people think? It's about how you feel inside. It's about how you view yourself, about how you value yourself. That's so much more important than what anybody else sees you as. Totally. That's like one of the hardest things to do is to stop caring what people think. I'm still working on that. It's a da- Again, a lot of this is daily self-work. Absolutely. I remember my therapist though once was saying to me once, she said, well, how do you know what people think of you? And it was this real mind kind of like, well, what do you mean? And and I said, well, because I do, because they tell me. And she said, what if they're lying? And she really played with me. You know, am I going to spend my entire life worrying about what other people think of me when maybe I will never, ever know truly what they do think of me? That is so interesting. It's like, because I feel like when I talk to some of my friends, they're like, Ryan, you're so narcissistic. And I was like, why? They're like, because you don't know what these people think about you. You're assuming that they're thinking this. And it's like, because you're only thinking about yourself. And I was like, that's a really interesting way to put it. Like, it makes sense. So yeah, that's good therapist. <laughs> <laughs> now, going back to, you know, being in the throes of binge eating disorder, what was the, the most valuable thing that you've learned going through it? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Um, I think the most valuable thing of going through it is that I'm not alone. And that for me was key because I think that there's so much shame, as we talked about, with mental health issues and, you know, eating disorders and binge eating disorder that when I knew that I wasn't alone, it, it literally changed. That even changed my life even more because I was like, gosh, like I am not alone. There's other people out there that are dealing with this. And I don't I, there's the same misery likes company. And like, I don't necessarily say that I'm miserable, but it, there is comfort to know that other men are struggling with this same issue. It, it changed my life the first time I, I had some guy come up to me at one of the events I was at. And he's like, wow, like you changed my perspective on this whole thing. Thank you so much. It's not it's not the end of the world. There is recovery. And I'm sorry, that was really long winded. But in short, knowing that I wasn't alone was the, was the biggest thing for me. Oh, I love that. And I think there is such power in that sense of community around it, because sometimes it can feel like such an isolating lonely journey when you are in the midst of an eating disorder. And especially because I think there's still such 
people don't understand. People don't get it. They don't get what it's like. They don't get that it's it's not a choice. It's not a choice that one day we suddenly made. Isn't that wild how people think that that is, it's a choice? They're like, don't put that food in your mouth. Or or for the other side, they're like, put the food in your mouth. I'm like, you think that this is a choice. You'd think that it, people would call me lazy. And I would say, listen, be, having an eating disorder is the most exhausting thing I've ever had to do. The amount of hiding, the amount of obsession, the amount of just like, behaviors that you take, it's, it's exhausting. So definitely not lazy. Oh, absolutely. I remember sort of when I just started to reach that full recovery space and realizing how much time and energy, both mentally and physically I had for life. I just couldn't believe that I had all this space in my brain to devote to other things. I really, I knew it had been consuming me, but I just didn't realize to what extent until I got out the other side. Um, I I experienced this, but I'm wondering if you did like that your eating disorder was such a part of your identity that you didn't even know how to live in the world without having it. Absolutely. Absolutely. I talked about my recovery as becoming softer. So not only was I becoming softer with the world, so with my, with anorexia, I was very hard and fast. It was very black and white. I was very harsh to myself, to others. And so not only was I becoming softer in my body, I was becoming softer with myself and with the world around me. But also I talk about it as I was learning how to live again. I didn't know how to exist in the world as an adult. I'd gotten sick when I was 12, you know, like you when you're eight, you know, that was when it first started to happen. And I think it's so important for people to realize that it is about learning how to live again, because when you are in the midst of an eating disorder, it is your life. Literally, it's it, it consumes all of you. Like every decision I made in my life when I was at the sickest point was based around how I felt about my body or based based around my eating disorder. And I just, it, it's so sad to look back and think how much time I wasted and how there was help out there. That's the thing is that like, I didn't even know, A, that there was anything wrong with me. B, I didn't, when I was diagnosed, I didn't have the education to know what to do after that or the knowledge, I should say. Yeah, absolutely. What would you like to see change in terms of of how how men are viewed in the eating disorder space and how can we what can we do to make sure that you know people don't go undiagnosed and that there is more awareness around the fact that eating disorders affect men just as much as they affect women. Totally. I think, you know, it's I get this question a lot and I always say, you know, I think that I get asked to do a lot of different podcasts because I'm a guy talking about it. So I think that that like right there, like we know that there will be a change when I'm not getting asked to do so many podcasts because I'm a guy talking about eating disorders. And I don't say that in a way that's like a negative way. I'm just saying that's how I personally am going to know that there's a shift because there's so many, all the media wants to talk to the guy that has an eating disorder because no other guys are really talking about it. But what I would like to see shift is I would like to see it become normalized. I would like to see it in the media more. Like when you watch TV or you watch movies or whatever it is, you see when they, the stereotypes, when they talk about eating disorders, like if someone has a binge eating disorder, they're either the white fat girl or sometimes maybe the black fat girl. You never see binge eating disorder with a guy or you see anorexia only with the middle to upper class white girl. It's like, why can't you portray people that really struggle with it? So I think the media is the biggest play when it comes to this. Also, getting more involved in the marginalized communities and exploring that. Listen, I'm a gay man. Eating disorders run rampant in my in the community that I'm in, and it's so not even talked about. So I would like to see more men talking about it and more men sharing their story, because I, I always say that we all have the power to impact somebody else's life just by storytelling, and that's exactly what I'm doing. 
I couldn't agree more. It's about bringing it out of the shadows, not hiding it under the carpet anymore and owning, owning the story. And it's that power of vulnerability, standing up and people seeing that we're not ashamed that we, we struggled with an eating disorder and we're not, we don't care if you judge us. This is our story and we want to use it to change lives. Totally. I think the more that we can do that and, and the more men that stand up and do that, I agree with you. I think that's where the shift is. And yes, the media has a lot to answer for in terms of their portrayal of eating disorders. I, I also think, you know, somebody asked me, why did, you know, gay rights become such like such a hot topic? And I said, it's because it became topic of conversation. So now you can start to see how body image is starting to become topic of conversation because there's a lot of influencers now out there that are doing it, which is awesome. So it's just needs more people talking about it. And I think people just need to be kinder to other people and to their themselves. I try to practice self-compassion and people say, what does that even mean? And that's a great question um, because it's hard to answer. Self Practicing self-compassion has been the, been the hardest thing I've ever had to do, being kind to myself. And the way that I do that is I, I just keep going. I just keep trying. That's it. It's like, it's not letting yourself go down that rabbit hole so badly that you can't pull yourself out of it. And it's okay if you do go down, but then it's also like, you just get back up and try again. Absolutely. And I think it's, recovery is a roller coaster. Life's a roller coaster. Yeah, yeah, they do say recovery is not linear and it is definitely not that. Definitely not. That's the thing is I think that people look to somebody, whether it's to you or to me or to the person next to them, and they think that their journey looks different. And if your journey does look different, they think that that's bad. I'm here to tell you that if your journey looks different than the person that you're talking about or thinking about, good, it should look different because nobody's journey is the same and that is okay. And if you take one step forward and two steps back, that's okay as well. It's like be being kind to yourself, allowing yourself to be on this road of recovery. Absolutely. And that self-compassion piece is so important because our eating disorders are already hard enough on us. We don't need ourselves <laughs> eating ourselves up. They're, they're also so isolating though, aren't they? Like their eating disorders are like the most isolating thing. And then you have COVID on top of it. So now we're even more isolated. So it's like, what do you do? Uh, it's been challenging. It sure is. And there was actually um, some research done recently into how COVID has affected the eating disorder population, because of course there were, there were everybody talking about how it's affected them, but there weren't actually any statistics. And it's really frightening because I think it not only obviously affects people who have restrictive eating disorders, but people with binge eating disorder, bulimia, you know, orthorexia, it doesn't, it doesn't discriminate because there is that sense of, of being isolated and not being able to access the services that, you know, possibly you are doing Zoom sessions with your therapist, but it's still not the same. And your life and the structure and the routines that you had are all so different. And I know for us, because we have been going in and out of lockdown in different states. It's been really hard for people going back into lockdown because they've just gotten used to being back out on the outside again. Mm-hmm. And there's that whole kind of fear of what are other people going to think of me? Um, and then, you know, we've got this ridiculous stuff on in both the media and social media around, you know, the COVID 15, you know, gaining the kilos and use this time to get fit and do this. You know, I can't believe that in the middle of a global pandemic, we are still focused on our bodies. But you know what, though, and I was talking to my therapist about this, this 
quarantine situation has actually been very healing for me and for the way that I view my body. I have not in five months put on a pair of pants that have a button on. So and now I don't have to go out in public really. So it's like, I don't care what people think about me. So I remember this is kind of how I lived. Then I remember two or three months ago, the city of LA was like, okay, we're going to lift everything before it kind of hit again. And I literally had this, the biggest panic attack. And I was like, no, I, I can't go out in public. Oh my gosh, what am I going to do? I looked, I gained, I must've gained weight. This isn't good. And then we didn't go, they locked us back down, but it's been very healing because I haven't been focusing on what I'm putting into my body. I've been more intuitively eating and that's the goal where you want to get right. So it's, it's been very healing for me. Absolutely. I think taking time out sometimes away from people to, to work on your relationship with food or exercise or just figuring out. I know for me, so when I, I recovered here on the Sunshine Coast and then I went back to Auckland and realized, oh no, that wasn't an environment that I wanted to be in. And I actually went to LA to find myself. So I spent two months in LA just living. Did you? Yeah. And that's when that's- That's a great place to be. Uh, it, trust me, I am really, really finding it very difficult. Usually I'm over there twice a year and it's really hard to comprehend that, well, they're saying that we won't be able to do it till the end of next year. And I've got a lot of very good friends over there that I'm- uh, I know for me, taking that time out in LA just- was part of my healing journey, learning how to live again, just going to Jones on third and picking the very cupcake that I wanted that for years beforehand, when we'd gone to LA, I'd sat there and, you know, like eyed them all up and then not chosen the one that I wanted, you know, whatever it was, but also just that process of learning, okay, like what food does my body like? Okay. I didn't feel so great after having that and being, just being on your own to figure it out. So it doesn't matter if you then want to spend the day in bed because you're not feeling so crash hot and just navigating it and figuring it out on your own and coming to that, that sense of inner peace around it. I I remember, uh, I was talking to my, um, nutritionist, which a lot of people are against in the eating disorder community, but mine actually specializes in eating disorders. And mine was about fear of foods was a big thing. I remember our first session, she's like, so what are, you, what are your thoughts on eating this? And I said, no. She's like, why? I was like, that has too many calories. I can't eat that. And she, we were going on this list and she's like, okay, I think you need to desensitize yourself to food. We need to work on that because that was such a thing where it's like, she's like, do you have bread in the house? And I was like, well, I have this really low calorie bread in my house. That's disgusting. She's like, well, why don't you have real bread in your house? And I was like, cause that's too many calories or too much fat or whatever it was. She's like, Ryan, you really need to start desensitizing yourself because if you don't, then that's, what's going to trigger a binge potentially is you're, you restricting so much that then you're eventually going to start binging, which she was right, obviously, but, um, it's, it's been a wild journey. <laughs> it is. It's, it, that's a perfect word for it. A wild journey. Yeah. It's like, yeah. I always say, Hey, you know, I've learned so much about myself, so much more than I ever would have if I hadn't gone through what I went through. And do you feel the same? Oh, 100%. Listen, like this eating disorder community that I'm a part of is not only have they become my good friends, they become like my family. And it's now is since I've been a part of this community, it's allowed me to become really who I am. Like I came out during this time that I'm part of this eating disorder community. I've finally accepted who I am as a person and all facets of that. And it's been the most challenging thing to to come to terms with what I'm struggling with. And then it's also been the most liberating and exciting thing because you see that you get so inspired when you hear other people's stories and you're like, gosh, like I want to be there. I want to be there and you can be there. It's been it's been incredible. It's been life changing for me, honestly. Coming out with my eating disorder has been life changing for me. 
Thank you so, so much for coming and speaking with me today. Honestly, I know without a shadow of a doubt that this is going to help so many men, even if they're not ready to come out with their eating disorder, as you say, even just knowing that they're not alone. I think that is just going to be so incredibly powerful. So thank you for your vulnerability, for your authenticity. You are just incredible. I appreciate you having me. Thank you so much. This has been great. (laughs) There is hope at ended.org.au. This is the End Eating Disorders Podcast, brought to you by BCU, customer-owned banking for you. This is a Casco Media production.